Bum, ba, 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 ba. It felt like, ah, oh, we're about to, like, like a huge motion picture. Hey, can I tell you something, though? The book of Genesis is pretty epic. Like, when you read it, there is some crazy and outlandish and wild and over the top, and there's some, there's some epic-type events going on in the book of Genesis. And so if you're just joining us, you're going to pick right back up because we basically are not trying to do a walk through everything, but we're just picking up some of the bigger ideas in Genesis. And so in week one, we looked at the creation account and what that really meant and what that was all about. And last week, we looked at the Tower of Babel and that interesting story. Today, we will look at a story known just simply as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, real quick, by show of hands, how many of you are familiar with this, this, this story? How many of you, okay, put your hands up. How many of you are not familiar with this story? Not at all. You know why few hands go up? It's because most of the time, we, we've at least heard about it. We don't know the details, most of us, but we just know it all went bad. You know, I, I was with a church member yesterday, and um, and I said, hey, are you working with kids? Are you going to be in service? And um, she goes, I'll be with the kids. And I said, here, let me give you, I'm going to give you the, it all burns. God destroys all of it. That's all you need to know. Go, to, go, go take care of kids now. And don't tell them that story. So my, my point is this, is many of us are familiar with the fact that God destroys these two ancient cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason why is because even inside of pop culture, we just know Sodom and Gomorrah represent God destroying, God laying the smack down. This is one of the Old Testament stories where God seemingly looks like he's kind of angry, upset, agitated. He can be hacked off quite quickly and likes to just you know, blow things up. This is one of those stories that, that if all you do is look at it as some type of isolated event outside of its true context, it can kind of look bad. And this is what's one of the funny things we, we think about sometimes is many times we look at the God of the Old Testament was angry. Like, what's, why did he have all those anger issues? Like, what, why was trying to hurt people? And then we, we see Jesus come along, we'd be like, but Jesus was so sweet. You know, he's holding the lamb in all those pictures. He's got that beautiful hair. He prays for children. I mean, it's like God was the angry version and Jesus was the counterbalance of grace. And that couldn't be more further from the truth and we will discover that today, that that is not at all who God is and that there's a lot of deeper thoughts and issues when we look at this story. So here, here let me bring you up to speed. We'll read the scripture that we're gonna pray. Are you ready? So in the book of Genesis, we move through this narrative of creation and some of these ancient stories that begins to show who God is and mankind and the interaction of the two of them. But eventually we get to a guy named Abraham. Everybody say Abraham. So Abraham begins the big plot story of Genesis, which is this. Genesis is primarily a family drama. Like how many of you like soap operas? And you're unashamed to raise your hand at you. Okay, there you go. So, so you, you, this is like the family soap opera, the family drama. If, if, we, if we know the rest of the book of Genesis, we know it goes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's an Ishmael in the middle. That creates a lot of drama. There's, there's a lot of weird flying, moving parts, this whole thing. Eventually, uh, Jacob has... 12 kids that become 12 tribes that become, and then they, and then the whole rest of the Old Testament is what? This one family that started out with Abraham multiplying into a big, huge nation, and then the rest of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is basically their story. But today we'll start with this person named Abraham. Now, here's what you know is that God calls Abraham out of Mesopotamia, and he says, I want you to move west into the land of Canaan, which is where Israel is today. When he goes, he brings with him his nephew named Lot. Now, eventually, the, 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 the two groups, Lot and Abraham, they, they prosper, they're successful, they're, they're basically like nomad ranchers. You gotta remember how 
long ago this was. This wasn't like, you know, you had states and borders and that's my land. It was much more wide open than that. And so they were basically nomadic ranchers, but their, their, their stuff got so big, they had so many servants, so many livestock, that eventually they decided, we can't actually stay together. We, we got too much going on. We need to split ways. And so the Bible says that, that they part ways, that Lot goes to a certain part of the, the, the land and the country. We'll talk about that in a minute. And Abraham goes the opposite direction. Lot ends up going to an area known as Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is kind of where we'll pick back up. Are you ready? Genesis chapter 19 tells the story. Here we go. The Bible says that the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he says to the angel, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet. That was a really, really nice gesture back then because... You didn't have closed-toed shoes, and you had funky feet. So he said, please come in, wash your feet, spend the night, and then go your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But Lot insisted so strongly that they did not go with him, and that he entered the house. Can you imagine, like, you gotta remember, we, we, we haven't even figured out the total wickedness of, of Sodom yet, right? But Lot knows, because he lives there. And so these two angels come into the city and they're like, hey, stay with me. You trust me, you want to stay with me. And they're like, no, 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 we're just going to sleep downtown, you know, like in the square area. We're just going to sleep. And he goes, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Like, could you imagine like some, some like travelers are coming through, maybe there's some out of town guests of yours. They're like, you know, no, we're just going to go, you know, kind of like, you know, the Richmond and just sleep outside. You know, like, we're gonna just, there's some parts of Oakland that, that look really, really interesting. We're just going to go sleep outside and just see what happens. And so what does Lot say? No, 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 trust me. You don't want to sleep, and you're going to see why. You don't want to sleep outside at Sodom. So he insisted so strongly, they ended up entering his house, and he prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men, everybody say all. Okay, you're way early, and then there's some of the others. Let's do it again. Everybody say all. Oh, there we go. So, so I want you to key in on the, the craziness that is this town. So the Bible said, before they had gone to bed, all the men from Every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, these are all really, really important, they surrounded the house. And they called the lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. This is the city that we're talking about here. You thought Oakland was bad. It's not that bad. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters. This is how depraved Lot is. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. You can do what you like with them. This is how wicked Lot is. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. This is kind of a play on a culture thing. There was a big, huge thing about hospitality in this culture, that when a guest came to your house, you were in charge of their provision and their protection. And there's a big cultural thing going on here. So, after this... He says, that the men say, get out of our way. This fellow has come, meaning Lot has come as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. I don't know what that is. These, all of the men, young and old, show up to Lot's house to basically take two men and have a big gang rape fest. And then they say, you know what? If you don't get out of our way, we're gonna do worse to you. So, like, I don't want you to play, you know, like, you know, it wasn't that bad. It was a depraved city. 
We'll, preach you, we'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Now, if you, if you were, uh, were you, any of you watching the Bible series when it came out on the History Channel? Were you guys watching that? You know, even if you just watched the first few episodes, like this story was in there. And it's crazy because like, I love the series and it's, it's mostly accurate, but there's definitely a few things that are a little bit off. And this is one where like, I'm watching this with my kid and the two angels that represent these two men, they pull a lot back in the house, but they got like some ninja gear on. They look kind of like almost matrix style and they go out and you'll see like they blind all the men and they go out with swords and start just, ha, ah. anyway. That's not what the scripture says but that's what the TV show went. It got, it got a little matrixy. So, so the Bible says when they pulled Lot back in the house, they shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find them. Now this is what's fascinating to me is you have all the men from every part of the city, young kids, old men, all of them are perverted, depraved, messed up out of their mind, come to do a big deal with taking the men and then they're blinded. Can you imagine what that would feel like? You're in a mob of just dudes and all of a sudden you're blinded. You don't know who's grabbing you or touching you. I mean, you'd freak out. So anyway, let you figure that out. So the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you, get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry, everybody say the outcry. That's an important word, we'll come back to that. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were pledged to marry his daughters and said, hurry and get out of this place because the, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But they thought he was joking. Verse 23, it says, so by the time that Lot got out of the city and reached the new place, his destination called Zoar, that the sun had risen over the land. And then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. From the Lord, I notice there's a dash, and it's like, just so we're clear on this. From the Lord, out of the heavens, thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all of those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. All right, let's pray before we begin. Father, we pray that God, we would take this story. And God, we'd not make too light of it, but we would discover your truth and we discover what you would say, and that even though this wasn't written to us, but it was written for us, God, and what we might glean from it today, God, we pray that Holy Spirit, you'd speak to us as individuals about what it is that we might learn and that we might take away from this story today, Lord. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. amen. This is a crazy story, isn't it? And, and there's, I could get a lot more graphic, but there's young minds and young ears in here, so I'm trying to keep it easy up in here. So like, you gotta know how wicked and how depraved this city really is that God decides to destroy it. But here's what I need you to know, is that it did not just start with God shows up at Sodom and Gomorrah and says, you know what, it's gonna burn. God doesn't show up and said, you know what, I don't like them, I'm gonna blow them up. As a matter of fact, when you really learn the story, it goes all the way back to Genesis 13 and then builds up to this. Because remember, Abraham and Lot decided we got too many livestock, too many served, too many everything, we gotta split and go our way. And in Genesis 13, it tells you why Lot ends up in this place. The Bible says that as they look at the surrounding areas, that Lot looked over that way and said, hmm, that looks lush and fertile, that looks really rich and green, and you know what? I'm going over there. 
And that's how it really starts. Notice that Abraham is the elder. By right, he can choose whatever he wants to first, just by honor, just by the, their cultural. He, the older would get their first pick and the first choice. But Abraham says, no, I'll let you choose and whatever way you go, I'll go the opposite. And Lot began to look at a place that was seemingly rich and fertile. And he said, that's the one that I wanna go. The first lesson I want you to know today is this, is that the grass is not always greener on the other side and godliness with contentment is great gain. The grass is not always greener on the other side. It's not. And godliness with contentment is great gain. See, here's what you need to know. So, so the reason why this place looks so lush, it has to do with the, the, the geography of the whole deal. When, when you know the, the area and the landmass and how the rivers were, basically the River Jordan starts up in northern Israel at the edge of Mount Hebron. It rolls all the way down like 1,500 miles, and it ends up emptying out inside of the Dead Sea. The reason why it's called the Dead Sea is because everything goes in, but nothing comes out. And so the reason why it looks so good from a distance is because basically the rivers that go in and the surrounding Dead Sea, it basically around the borders of it makes everything look super lush. But you know what the problem is? Nothing grows there though. Like you can't grow agriculture there. So the only thing the cities would do was get as close to the sea and as close to the rivers, this is why they called the, in the plain, they would get inside the plain and get as close to the water as they could, but nothing agriculturally would grow there. So what's fascinating is, is in Genesis chapter 13, it says Lot originally went there and pitched his tent outside of the city. But see, just, just four or five chapters later, the Bible says he's not outside of the city anymore. It actually says that he's inside the city gates. He, he's changed. But the first thing you need to know is this, is why did he choose where he wanted to choose? Because he thought it would be better. Out of his own greed, he thought, well, uncle gave me first dibs. I'm going to the place that looks the best. And many times you and I fall into that same trap. There is a, a tendency inside of us to think it would always be better if. And we start to look at maybe our marriage, we look at our job, we look at the city we're in, we look at all that's surrounding us, and we think, man, that, I, that would just be so much cooler. You know, we've been in our marriage for over seven years, and then we hit that seven-year slump, and it's like, man, yeah, it'd be so cool if I could be single again, or if I could have that one, and that one, or that one, or that one, and go there, or be free, or do this, whatever, and we, we get hung up on, and we get duped into, and we get tricked into thinking, man, it would be so much better. We look at our jobs sometimes, we hate our job, and we're frustrated, we got that annoying boss, and it seems like every boss has been annoying, doesn't it? And then we think back and we think every job has been a bad job. And we think, man, if I could only have that job, and it would be so much better. And see, here, here's the problem, is that the reason why life seems to repeat on the same cycle is this, is because you went to the place that you thought was greener, but you showed up and it was still you that was there. And you showed up in that new marriage, and then you just found out that it was just you that was there. And now in your mind, it's probably just them because all women are crazy or all women are awful or all men are evil or all men are bad. And it, all forgetting it was us that showed. And see, what we typically fall into the trap of is think, well, I'm the one that chose this marriage. You know what I need to do? I need to re-choose a new marriage. I chose this job, so I need to re-choose another job. And we think that if we just choose differently, that the outcome would change. Can I tell you it's not in your choices? It's in your beliefs. It starts in your attitudes. Because see, the, the reason why you think it's so greener over there is you don't know what's really going on over there. That usually it's, it's, it's growing on a septic tank and you just don't take care of your own lawn. And so that's why it looks a little bit better over there. 
But the Bible says that godliness with great contentment is gain. Like, that's the way to live life. It's, it's not to say, well, I just need to re-choose and ch check out on this one and try that one and dabble with that one, and we repeat the cycle over and over. You know what it is? The, the Bible says, no, you need to give your heart to God and let that change. You need to give your beliefs to God and let that change. You need to give your attitudes to God and let that change, because if you'll do that, you know what you'll find? You'll find contentment right in the midst of where you already are, and every future place that you will be. But the reason why, like if you look at the divorce rates, the, the divorce rates are higher on marriage number two and marriage number three and marriage number four. Why is that? Because it's the same dysfunction junction going into each individual relationship. Man, it's quiet up in here. <laughs> I had a guy come up to me yesterday and he was so sweet. I was at a party and uh, he goes, hey, I know you, you're the preacher. Man, I love you. You are so funny. He goes, I live out in Modesto, but man, if I, could go, if I ever went to church, I'd come to your church. And he's a good old boy. He's a good guy. But he's like, you're the funny preacher. I thought, man, I hope you don't show up at church today. <laughs> ain't, nothing funny about, ain't nothing funny about this one. You know, if you're, if you're visiting today, I'm sorry. You showed up on Sodom and Gomorrah week. <laughs> now, this is what you need to know. We're in a summer series, it's a little more Bible study, it's a little more slow down, it's a little more teaching, and we're walking through the book of Genesis. So the fact that you stumbled in here, I apologize, but this, at the end of the day, it is what it is. And I don't apologize for what God did and what God said. I do try to make sense of it, though. And then I try to glean from it and live from it. But I've learned in my own life that when I get hung up on all the daydreaming of what I wish I had, and you know what I realize I'm missing out on? I'm not grateful for what I do have. I'm not taking care of what I do have. And I have missed it because I thought it would be better if I was over there. The grass is not always greener on the other side. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Number two is this. Uh, bad company corrupts good character. It does, doesn't it? That, 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 that's a quote from the book of Corinthians if you didn't know it. Like bad company, um, the band. They were in the area where if you just named your band after a city or a state, you know, it's Kansas, Chicago, you know, it's like, you know, and then there was bad company. This is a scripture verse out of the book of Corinthians. It says, bad company corrupts good character. See, the Bible says that Lot, when he first showed up to this seemingly fertile land, when he got there, he found out, I can't grow anything here. Nothing's fertile here unless I go in there. And so the Bible says that originally he pitched his tent outside of the city, but by the time you get to Genesis 19, it doesn't say he's pitched his tent outside the city. The Bible says that he is sitting at the city gates. Now here's what you need to know. When you read all of scripture, in that day, in that culture, in that time period, the city gates is where business happened. It's where commerce happened. It's where politics happened. It's where judgment happened. It's where, every, it's where the major players of the city hung out to do deals. They even just checked you out when you came in and out of the city. And so the Bible says that when the two men, the two angels came into the city, where did they find Lot? Sitting at the city gates. I could give you a dozen scripture references for the Bible talking about men sitting at the city gates. That's where business happened. That's where politics happened. So think about this. Lot is not on the outside of the problem. He is the problem. He's a part of the problem. Like he's right in the mix that he literally has taken this wicked city and he goes, even though y'all, I think y'all are crazy and even though I know who the true God is, I'm gonna make some money off y'all. That he literally is cashing in on their wickedness. That he has become a part of the system. So you got to remember, like, Sodom is so wicked and so heinous and so evil. Like, the type of people that are in there. you got to remember, like, young men were a part of this big gang rape, go get the angel thing. Where did they learn that from? 
Where do you think they got that from? Do you think they woke up as little children decided this is, the, this is the appropriate way or the proper way to live and treat other people? No, they were trained that way. They were abused from childhood. This is how awful the city is. Both young and old. All a part of the same system. So the Bible says that good, I'm sorry, that bad company corrupts good character. Here's what I want you to see is that Lot, Lot changed when he went to that city. Lot was not always like this. And if you'll go back and look at your own life, now here's the problem that we run into, is many times we look at this and we condense it down to going back to our high school years and we say, yeah, you're right. Because when I hung out with Knucklehead, I always did something stupid. And, and we, we do, it's easy to go back. It's easy to go back and say, oh yeah, that's for peer pressure. That's for when you're in middle school and high school and they're trying to get you to do this and do that. And you know, just, I got that cute commercial out there where they try to offer the kid weed and be like, what are you, a chicken? He goes, no, you're a turkey. Anyway, uh, and we condense it down to that. And, and you know what? We could all sit here and we could tell some really, really funny and awful stories about, can I get an amen, all the dumb stuff we did. And here's what I know about you and here's what I know about me is that it, it was not because we didn't know better. You know what I mean? None of us are that dumb. We knew better. Well, occasionally we are, but most of the time. It wasn't because we didn't know better. It was just because of who we were with. And I know how, I, mean, I could just go on and on and on and all the stories of my delinquent childhood of, of, of the different friends and the different relationships and the different places and the at times, it, it's all bad. So I don't wanna celebrate those things. I just wanna, but here's the deal. Don't discount that to just saying that was a childhood thing. I'm older now, I'm more mature. Because I know y'all. I'm the one that gets the phone calls and the counseling. I'm, I know. And the problem is, is that some of us, we haven't grown up and some of us still have friendships and relationships and attachments that still lead us down wrong paths. Now, we're probably not out doing the same illegal things that we used to do. But the question is this, is do the friendships that you have enrich your soul? I mean, that's the penetrating question. Do the friendships that you have enrich your soul? You're so, now I have two types of friendships. I have friendships that, that I depend on and lean on and glean from and draw from and they enrich my soul. And then I've got other relationships. And those aren't things that I would call like, these are absolute like my buddies that if all goes, this is who I'm calling. But these are people that I say, you know what? God's put me in, my, in their life to love them, to help them, to be there for them, to pray for them. And there's those. See, like the, the question you have to ask is the people that are in that inner circle though, do they make it hard for you to live for Jesus? If the answer's no, then they're good. But if the answer's yeah, they make it hard for me to live for Jesus, then they need to be outside of that inner circle. Because no matter how much you think they're great or how much you love them, or I don't want them to you know, have hurt feelings. Or whatever. You don't have to hurt anybody's feelings. But I'm telling you that the relationships that you have, they determine the quality of your life many times. They determine the direction of your life many times. Be careful who it is that you hang out with. Proverbs says it the most brilliant way. He goes, Solomon says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. I mean, you just can't get it. That's pretty brilliant. Like, I wish I made that up. That's good stuff. Notice that it says that wisdom is, is, is almost contagious. You can get almost like osmosis. Like, you can just be around it. And it's very, very true. I've found it. That when I'm hanging around godly men, who have godly character and who live wise lives that I just glean from and I pick up on and I begin to adopt habits or attitudes and they challenge my old attitudes and my old habits and my old ways of thinking and I just get a little bit wiser. Like it's good to be around wise people. This is, this is the saying I like to go with is this, is if you're the smartest person that you know, you're in a lot of trouble. If you're the wisest person you know, you're in trouble right now. 
You better find that or you're Jesus Jr. I don't know which it is, but you better find some people that you're gleaning from that are stretching you and challenging you in whatever area of life there is. But the Bible says if you walk with the wise, you'll become wise. Now check this out. It doesn't say the opposite. It doesn't say if you hang out with stupid people, you'll get stupider. It doesn't. What it says is this, is that when you hang out with foolish people, you suffer harm. It's not that you glean because you still know better, don't you? It's not that you don't know better, it's just that you were with them. And so because you're with them, you didn't get more foolish or more dumb, you just suffered the wrath and the carnage that follows them. If you got friends that it always turns out bad, you might need to take a step away from those friends. If you have friends that drama follows them wherever they go, you need to back up out the drama, you need to change the channel. Don't follow the drama, because bad company corrupts good character. Uh, number three is this, from the, from the world of Sodom and Gomorrah that we learn. Number three is this, is that the world is broken and evil. I mean, it is. It is this. Now the earth, beautiful. God, amazing. But the world, in and of itself, it's broken, and it's evil. All the way back from Genesis chapter three, something went wrong, something went haywire. That thing is called sin. It's more than mistakes, more than a whoopsie-daisy. Sin, and sin broke the world, and it broke humanity, and therefore evil was the result. And all throughout the book of Genesis, you can see before God ever does anything, and before God begins to bring laws and boundaries and guidelines, and let's pull this thing together, you see people acting crazy. They were so crazy in Genesis chapter six that God said, I have to wipe them off the face of the earth with a flood. Because every intention of their heart is wicked and evil always. You find them in, in Genesis chapter 10 at the Tower of Babel, they're just, no, I need to stop this. By the time you get to Sodom and Gomorrah, you find people doing the most evil and wicked and heinous things. This is why the Bible says the outcry had come up against them. The outcry is used all throughout scripture, through the prophets, through other parts. Basically what it is, is all the people that they were abusing, all the people that they were maliciously hurting, their outcry. See, don't, don't get it twisted. God just didn't show up and say, I don't like these people. God is merciful. God is patient. But eventually, God brought judgment because the world is evil and wicked. Now here's what you need about the Bible. The Bible says something unique about the world. Everybody say the world. Now, when we say the world, we're typically using it like that round ball that's three places out from the sun and that, that the world. No, that's, that's the earth. When the Bible refers to the world, and this is repeatedly throughout the New Testament especially, you find it signaling in on the culture, the society, and the systems of your day. Let me give you an example. First John chapter 2, verse 15. The Bible says, do not love the world. Now, that sounds weird because... It, in John 3, 16, it says, Jesus so loved the world that he gave his own, you know what I'm talking about. You have to differentiate. Jesus loves people. The world, in this sense, is a system and a culture and an ideal of thinking. He says, don't love that world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of God or the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. But the world is passing away in the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever. See, when you get so wrapped up and so ingrained and so engrossed and so a part of a system, you can't tell the difference anymore between what's true and what's false, between what's righteous and what's ungodly. You can't tell the difference anymore, can you? 
Why? Because it, 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 let me show you what it says in 2 Peter chapter 2. The Bible says, and this is the New Testament. The New Testament talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, and the rest of the Bible always refers to Sodom and Gomorrah as a reminder of the wrath of God against wickedness. Now check out what it says in 2 Peter 2. It says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and who delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, listen to those phrases, dwelling among them, it tormented his righteous soul from the day by from day to day by seeing, everybody say seeing, and hearing. Here's what's interesting. Notice it said that his soul was tormented. The King James says vexed. You know what that means? It literally is a term that refers to the rubbing over of something until you make it callous. See, when you live inside of a system and you're unaware that the system is there and you're unaware that the system is trying to infect you and mess with you and teach you and train you and coerce you and manipulate you, you're just a part of it. You don't even know that it's going on, but all the while it's just this. And it's hard, but it's subtle, and it just slowly goes. And it, listen, it's, it's day by day. It's not like the world just land blasted you and tried to sit you down and just tried to absolutely do some brainwashing. No, 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 no. It was just a just, little bit day by day. We're just gonna rub on this thing a little bit today, a little bit tomorrow, by the seeing and by the hearing. And then you begin to ask yourself, that's, that's kind of how it works, isn't it? We're so involved in a culture and a society by what we see and by what we listen to all day long. I could go by TV show by TV show, movie by movie, what's on the, what's on the radio, song by song, what's on the billboard. I could go through every one of them and I could show you, do you see this, do you see this? And I guarantee you in, in most every one of them you will find these ideas that are absolutely counter to the ways of God, in rebellion to the ways of God, in absolute the opposite direction of the ways of God, but you're not really aware of it. I mean, we see stuff on television all the time where it's a guy and a girl and they get together and they shack up and they go do their thing and that's just the way it is. And we don't, it doesn't even dawn on us. Why? Because that's normal. I'm, I'm gonna set somebody free here real quick here. Just because it's normal, don't make it right. Just because it's normal doesn't mean it's good. Do you see how infected they were? Both young and old showed up to do a big gang rape thing and guess what? That was normal. Now, would that ever be okay with you? No, that's too far away. But I guarantee you what has become normal, a whole lot of things that are wrecking your life and wrecking your future and wrecking your family and wrecking the culture around you and it's tearing it all to shreds. And all the while, we're completely unaware of it because the world, I'm telling you, when we talk about it, it's subtle, it's silent, it's quick. And what it does is it just slowly wears you away. And the, the prophet Isaiah says it so beautiful. This is why he says it. He said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. See, eventually you don't know the difference anymore, do you? Because it's all just normal. The world is evil and broken. You need to always be reminded of that. And you say, well, we're a lot better than Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. I don't know if we're that much better, though. We need to be aware. Last one is this. Number four. Fourth big idea thought, lesson from Sodom and Gore is this, is Jesus is the righteous judge. You notice I said, we, we, we sometimes think of the Old Testament, we think God was angry. What was he so mad about? Just blow people up without even thinking about it. And then comes Jesus and he's so sweet. He forgives all, yeah, all people. Do you know what's interesting? Remember I told you that all throughout the book of Genesis you'll find Jesus? Let's watch. Genesis chapter 18, let's read 
you go back one chapter, the Bible says that three men show up to Abraham and have a conversation with Abraham. And it starts off, it says these three men, and then it says, in essence, that they're three angels. But then the wording changes on it. Now, if we had time, we could break down the whole thing. I could show you the different words of God, the different words of angels. You just have to trust me on this. It starts out as three men who are angels show up, show up and begin to talk to Abraham. But all of a sudden, about halfway through the chapter, the, the language switches and it changes. And no longer is it he talking to an angel, but he's talking to, watch this, Genesis chapter 18, verse number 16. It says, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, or Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, everybody say the Lord. Lord. Now, if you read your Bible and you notice that Lord is in all caps, it's a unique way of, of them putting it in there. It was basically their way of saying is there's a word for the Lord, meaning like a Lord, and there was a word for saying, no, the Lord God. And this is what they were saying, no, the Lord God. So it switched. It went from angels to now he's talking to who? But is he talking to God in a prayer? No, he's not. He was talking to three men, and one of those men just happened to be who? The Lord. Now, it's a simple question. What does God in a body look like? So who is this? The only, every scholar I can ever find is like, we think this is Jesus. Because it's God in a body talking to Abraham because he sits down and eats. That's the key to knowing it's Jesus because Jesus loves food. You ever read that? <laughs> I'm not lying. Go read, especially after the resurrection. First thing they said is, uh, hey, what, what, what happened? I'm hungry. Give me some food. And every encounter, every encounter with Jesus after the resurrection, you know what they do? They eat. So anytime there's a guy in the Bible that's God and he's eating, it's got to be Jesus. So, verse 17. So the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great, powerful nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, now again, this is still, this is a, a physical person. We had the whole time to read the chapter it becomes so obvious. A physical person that he refers to as the Lord. The Lord said, the outcry, there it is again, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as their outcry that has reached me. If not, I will not. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus judges these people. Jesus decides to condemn the city. Jesus decides to wipe the city off. Was it God? Yeah. But don't think that God was angry. Here's what you need to know about God. Is that God is patient. Is that God is kind. And that God is merciful. But never ever forget that God is also a righteous judge. In the book of Romans, Paul says this. He goes, let us always consider the goodness and the severity of God. Now, in this church, that's the majority of the time we're talking about the goodness of God. But every once in a while, the Bible says that God's patience begins to run low, that the outcry has reached. As a matter of fact, there's other parts in Scripture where the Bible says it's talking about a certain city, and he goes, their sin has not reached its full level yet. Like God was sitting there trying, hoping, waiting, being patient. He goes, no, 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 no. I don't want you to do anything yet. Their, their sin has not reached this maximum capacity yet. I'm holding out hope is what God's saying. But at the end, they didn't repent. 
And all throughout scripture you see this idea of God saying, repent, turn away from your wickedness, don't live like this, live for me, put your faith, put your trust in me, don't hurt other people, don't abuse other people, don't live in such a wicked and evil way that the, the, literally the outcry of mankind has reached my ears. And he waits, he's patient, he's patient. Think about this, the whole book of Jonah is about a prophet who is sent to a city called Nineveh, who is in itself incredibly wicked, incredibly evil. If you were to know their story, basically like, these are the type of militaries that would skin people and then burn them alive. This is how they treated people. They were the most awful and heinous people of their day. And he, he tells Jonah, I want you to go and tell them to repent. And Jonah doesn't want to. Jonah doesn't, Jonah's like, no, let them burn. And he reluctantly, by way of fish, ends up getting there. I mean, he doesn't want to go. He gets to he gets to Nineveh, and I don't even know if his sermons were that good. I, mean, I imagine they're like, okay, repent if you want. You know, I don't care. The Bible says he walks three days through the city, telling him to repent, and then he gets to the other side of the city. He goes, now I'm going to see and wait and see what see what God does. The Bible says that the people repent. And that Jonah is actually angry about it. Because Jonah wanted them to repent. <laughs> no, they're wicked. You need to get them. And you know what Jonah's words were? Listen to this. Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. This, this is what he says. He goes, I knew it. That's why I didn't want to come and preach here. I knew. Listen to this. I knew that you were the gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding love. A God who relents. From sending calamity. God doesn't want to burn Sodom and Gomorrah to the ground, but never get it twisted. Your sin is still sin, and Jesus is a righteous judge. Jesus has paid the price for your sin. And that's the only way that you get off. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is, in essence, the story of the gospel. We have this dumb notion in America that there's bad people and there's good people. That's wrong. There's all bad people, and then there's Jesus. That's it. We, we're all evil. We're all wicked. We all have. None of us are pure. None of us are holy. None of us are righteous in and of ourselves, separated from We're all deserving of punishment. There's none good. No, not one. That's what Jesus said. There's not good guys and bad guys, and good, God likes good guys, and good guys go to heaven. No, 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 no. They're all bad guys. I'm a bad guy. You're a bad guy. We're all bad guys. Be careful how you judge other people. Because apart from Christ, we're all the same. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And we're all sitting there thankful that he's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Because if it were not for that, our faith would all be the same. The Bible says this in Jude chapter 7, and I'll, I'll wrap it up. Jude 1.7 says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual morality and perversion. They serve as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. You know what Sodom and Gomorrah is? Sodom and Gomorrah became an example to the rest of the world for us to always be reminded there's not good guys and bad guys. There's only bad guys. And that when we don't repent of our sin, we all find ourselves sitting in the seat of judgment. Ready to be served judgment for our sins. And the only way we get free of them is by accepting, receiving the fact that Jesus took that punishment for us. And you have those who put their faith in Jesus to become their Savior. And those that do. That's it. 
me help you real quick here. The, the grass is not always greener on the other side. Here's a question I would dare you to ask yourself this morning. Where have I been daydreaming and working and wandering? Is there an area where I've left where I should be because I thought it would be better somewhere else? If, if bad company corrupts good character, who are the people that are in the inner circle of my life? Do they enrich my soul or do they make it hard for me to live for Jesus? I need to examine my friendships. How is it that I'm caught up in this world that I'm just like it? You know what's fascinating? Listen, listen to this, listen to this. When, Abel, when Lot went to his sons-in-laws, he said, the city is wicked and it's so wicked that God's going to burn it to the ground. And the Bible says they laughed because they thought he was telling a joke. How a part of that system do you have to be? If you're in here today and you said, Todd, I think you're a little overboard. Todd, I think you're one of those kind of holy rolling preacher guys. Which, trust me, if you know me, I'm not. I think you're a little bit overboard. I don't think the city's that bad. I don't think wickedness is that bad. I don't think evil's that bad. Here's what I dare to say. You might be like lots, son of This is no joke. But they were so ingrained and so a part of the system and the culture and the way of thinking that the idea that it's wicked and the idea that God would judge it, man, you're true. You're crazy. You're just some stupid preacher that reads an ancient old book. How have you been vexed? How have you been calloused over to where what used to be evil has now become normal? What used to be a sin has become eh. Is there any area of my life where sin is just not a big deal is the question you ask yourself. And then lastly, I hope you ask yourself the most penetrating question of all. Have I repented and turned towards Jesus? Have I turned towards wickedness and said, Jesus, I need you? Most important question you'll ever ask yourself in all of life. More important than who will I marry, or where will I work, or where will I go, or where will I live? It's this. Have I turned towards Jesus? Let's pray this morning. God, I pray that we would consider your goodness today, but we would also consider your severity. God, I pray that we would consider how gracious and compassionate you are. But God, let us never be blind to the fact that sometimes our heart is going Sometimes we're led astray. Sometimes the world that we live in is certainly not the way that you drew it up. But we are in a society that is lost and broken. So, Father, today as a church, we turn towards you. If you're in this place and you say, Todd, I've never done that before. I've never in my heart turned towards Jesus, but I know I need God in my life. Jesus is the righteous judge. Which means this, he knows all, he sees all. He, 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 in your heart, if you turn towards him, he's like, I, I get it, I'm, you're with me. You're forgiven. And if you're in this place and you, you say, Todd, I need to turn towards Jesus this morning. And on the count of three, I want you to slip your hand and say, that's me. I just need to turn towards Jesus. I need Jesus in my life. On the count of three, raise your hand. One, two, three. Slip your hand up in the air. Amen. Amen. Listen. He is the righteous judge. He, yeah, but he's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger and bounding in love. He relents from sinning. He doesn't want to destroy anybody. As we do that on our own, we turn away from Him. So if you're in this place and you raise your hand, in your own way, in your heart, I want you to turn towards Jesus and say, God, I need you. Your prayer would be as simple as, God, I need you in my life. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Jesus, help me to know you. Jesus, help me to follow you. Today and every day for the rest of my life. It's as simple as that. And God responds to that prayer. So, Father, today as a church, we declare, God, we want to be more. We want to be reminded. God, we need you. Far from you. 
apart from you, you're all standing.